this morning I want to speak to you on the subject of the Son who satisfies. Jesus, the Son who satisfies. From Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, beginning in verse 31. Jesus, the Son who satisfies. Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, beginning in verse 31. Hear now the word of God. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. Now that word secluded is the word that indicates desolation, wilderness, openness, barrenness. To a secluded place and rest a while, for there were many people coming and going, and they did not have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going, and many recognized them, and ran there together on foot from all the cities, and got there ahead of them. You'll remember that the disciples had been sent out on a mission trip. They'd come back and given their report. And So where are all these people coming from? They're, they're likely coming from the places where they've been hearing the gospel and seeing demonstrations of Christ's miraculous power work through the disciples. When Jesus went ashore, He saw a large crowd and He felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and He began to teach them many things. When it was already quite late, His disciples came to Him and said, This place is desolate and it is already quite late. Send them away so they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But He answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to Him, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves and kept giving them to the disciples to set before them, and he divided up the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were five thousand men who ate the loaves. Would you pray with me? God, our Father in heaven, we ask in the name of Your Son, Jesus, who satisfies us, that we would be filled today in the hearing of Your Word. God, that we would, whatever we're trusting in that does not bring real satisfaction, that You would lead us to drop it and to take up afresh, following wholeheartedly after Jesus Christ, who is satisfaction from heaven. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Aside from Jesus' resurrection, the feeding of the 5,000 men, which is likely more than 15,000 people, is the only other miracle recorded in all four Gospels. It's a miracle that's of great importance to all of the Gospel writers. It signifies the fact that Jesus will ultimately be the bread of life. He takes the bread, He blesses the bread, He breaks the bread, and then later at the Last Supper, Jesus does the very same thing and he, when He says, this bread is My body broken for you. Jesus transforms a young boy's Hebrew happy meal into a supernatural feast with 12 full 
baskets of broken bread left over, enough for every disciple himself to eat and to share. In other words, the feast continues. Why is there bread left over and why are there 12 baskets and 12 disciples? Because Jesus is symbolically entrusting the church with the privilege and the responsibility of taking the broken bread to the people that will remain after He ascends to heaven. There's bread left over for His church. There's bread for us to take. There's plenty of bread left to share because Jesus keeps on being available until the last are called and He comes again. James Edwards observes that Mark follows the account of Herod's banquet with a banquet that's of a very different sort. At this banquet, Jesus presides. It's not held in a fortress or a palace, but in the open air in the rolling hills of Galilee. And the invitation is not restricted just to the important people. It's all people. Jesus feeds all, verse 42, and they are satisfied. When I think of eating bread and satisfaction... I think of how I feel after a second basket of Logan's yeast rolls has been delivered to my table. And I wrote that sentence down before my family decided on Friday or Saturday that we were going to go to Logan's. And so I said, yes, Lord Jesus, we will go to Logan's. And when we were there and they brought that second basket of Logan's yeast rolls, I snapped a picture. And now you all want to go to Logan's for lunch. When you go, tell them they owe North Roanoke Baptist Church a little extra on the side, you know, a percentage of your, your lunch ticket. But I, I love Logan's, and I, I don't know why I even order steak. Because by the time the steak comes, I, I get over-satisfied, I get stuffed. But bread has been synonymous with satisfaction. And not just the filling of our stomachs, but the f- filling of the needs of our lives and of our hearts It's been synonymous with satisfaction from the very first pages of Scripture. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve are cast out of Eden, God says to Adam, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread until you return to the ground. Not a very satisfying way to live. But in that same chapter, a son is promised who will come and reverse the curse. And Jesus is that son. What the world needs church, what the church needs is to feast upon the Son who satisfies. Everyone needs the bread that comes down from heaven in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And while the disciples still do not yet understand the symbolism that is present in the feeding of the 5,000, they nevertheless, nevertheless they obey Jesus. And it is through their obedience that we, the church, can see through this physical miracle how it is that Jesus is still at work involving His church in bringing the miracle of His supernatural satisfaction, He is the bread of life, to the billions who remain hungry. Wandering where? In desolate places. Do you see that in verse 35? The the description of where the people are is a metaphor for the spiritual reality of their lives. It's like a wilderness. It's desolate. It's harrowing. It's without fulfillment. They are in desolate places without the bread of life. And what Mark is showing us, church, is that for all kinds of people to find supernatural satisfaction in Jesus, we must pursue rest through fellowship with Christ. Secondly, we must have compassion upon those who are wandering in the wilderness without a shepherd. And finally, we must overcome our excuses, release what He has given us, and share His miraculous provision with all who will eat of it. 
First, we must pursue rest in fellowship with Jesus. We've been reminded several times already in Mark's Gospel that discipleship involves two key elements. First, being with Jesus. And second, being sent by Jesus. But being with Jesus always comes first. In my life, I've noticed a tendency to prioritize what I do more than whose I am. Have you ever noticed that in your life? It's about the activity. It's about the pace. It's about the next thing that I can do. But Jesus says my identity comes before my duty. That whose I am becomes, comes before what I do. And if that's true, church, what that means is we must cultivate our union with Christ to be effective in ministry for Jesus. Only in Christ can we find the satisfaction that fuels the mission and the ministry. This means, church, that ministry is not a substitute for getting away together to hear and be refreshed in the glorious gospel of the King. Why do we pause every Sunday and hear the gospel? Why do we sing songs about the gospel? Why do we open our hearts and ask God to fill us? Because we need to be filled. We need to be with Jesus to then do the work that Jesus has called us to do. As Edwards writes, the greater the demands on the disciples, the greater their need to be alone with Jesus. Vance Havner put it this way, if we don't come apart, we will come apart. In ministry, there are often times when we do not even have time to eat. Verse 31, I've been there as your pastor. But when the trip is done or the project is finished, the temptation is to move on to the next thing and not even get a bite to eat. In an age of cell phones and hyper-connectivity, the constant flow of needs and demands and questions and requests and information can lead us to conclude that Jesus needs us. But church, it is always we who need Jesus. We must vigilantly find and guard and protect those times to get away together to rest with Jesus. According to Thayer, rest means to cause or permit one to cease from any movement or labor in order to recover and collect his strength. The life of the disciple of Jesus is one of alternating rest and activity. We are called to pursue the mission by relying on Christ in whom we find rest. Not by relying upon our own resolve or our own ingenuity or our own fortitude. And while Jesus commands us to rest only for a brief while. He says, come away for a while. Verse 31, it means a brief while. He nevertheless commands us to rest. There must be periods of rest in the life of a disciple of Jesus. And rest we must. Why? Because the people who will be waiting for us when the moment of rest is over, they must have more from us than just ourselves. They need the Christ in whom we find our rest. We don't have anything to offer the world other than what Christ gives us. In verse 33, people run to get ahead of Jesus and the disciples, and it's not by accident that the rhythm of our week is to begin with a day of active rest. Rest in community together as we worship and delight in Christ our bread. And then we let Him launch us back out into a world of people who need Him. We must find rest through fellowship with one another in Christ. But secondly, we must have compassion for those in the wilderness 
without the shepherd. We must have compassion for those who are still in desolate places who do not know our shepherd. Once more, Jesus encounters a crowd, but His response to the crowd is different this time. You'll remember as we've been going through Mark, when He encounters a crowd so far, He's gotten away from the crowd. He's, he's sort of rebuked the crowd, but here He does not. But, and there's one little word that describes the crowd that's different than anything else we've encountered in Mark so far. It's a, it's a many peopled crowd. It's a large crowd, but it's, it's, the Greek is poloi, which refers to the individual people. In other words, this crowd is not like the crowds before. It's not a crowd with a mob mentality, seeking what they can get out of Jesus. Rather, they are wanting to just know more of Jesus. It's a crowd that finally has the right mentality and the right approach to who Jesus is. And when Jesus sees them, He feels compassion for them, verse 34. The word compassion is one of my favorite words in the New Testament. It literally means to be moved in the bowels. Jesus feels the condition of the people in His gut. And I submit to you, church, that we need to see lost people like that. We, we need to not look down our lofty noses at them. We need to not look down at the world for acting like lost people. Of course they act like lost people. They're lost people without a shepherd. They need to know our shepherd. May God move us with the sort of visceral compassion that moved Jesus. May we feel the condition of the world in our gut, that they are wandering in desolate places without a shepherd. Jesus sees them as sheep having no shepherd. Exactly what God does not want for humanity. As Edwards writes, Jesus sees a whole people without direction, without purpose, without a leader. When the warrior prophet Joshua is appointed to follow Moses and lead God's people into the promised land, we read this, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them, who will lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. We need a shepherd. You see, when Jesus mentions the people are like sheep without a shepherd, He's referencing us back to the Old Testament and He's telling us that the people need a greater and better Joshua, a greater and better salvation who will deliver them from the greater and more terrifying enemy of sin and death. Edwards reminds us that the image of sheep without a shepherd is not just a picture of peaceful green fields, but of military leadership and victory. When Jesus talks about a shepherd king and warrior king he's not talking about the little picture that we show to the five-year-olds in the preschool and just sweet little jesus in the green fields he's talking about a military conqueror joshua leads the israelites into the promised land and he destroys the walls of jericho He's talking about people who need victory and he needs someone who will lead them into victory. And the reality is, church, people all around us are defeated. And we know the Deliverer. People all around us are wandering. And we know the way. Sheep without a shepherd need a shepherd who will lead them to where they need to go. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, there were questions, but there were no answers. There was distress, but there was no relief. There was anguish of conscience, but no deliverance. Tears, but no consolation. Sin, 
but no forgiveness. Jesus is the shepherd of God's people. In John 10.11, He is the good shepherd. In Hebrews 13.20, He is the great shepherd. In 1 Peter 5, He is the chief shepherd. In Luke 15, He is the shepherd who rejoices over just one sheep who was lost but is found. And how is it that Jesus shows compassion for the people who are lost? Do you catch this church? Before He feeds them, He teaches them. Do you see that in verse 34? He teaches them many things. The first act of compassion by Jesus for His people is teaching them. Do we believe that the fact that a holy God has given us His love letter, His word, is an act of compassion? How quickly we blow past the fact that God has spoken to His people And we believe that compassion is only acts of service and other things. But the first act of compassion that God gives to His people is that He speaks His Word to us. Today, Jesus is showing you His compassion by gathering people into local churches where God's Word and its implications for God's people are faithfully proclaimed. This is why Peter commands pastors, shepherd the flock of God among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God. We need to feel this, church. Jesus feels compassion, and He shows it by teaching. Too often we talk about teaching and preaching and sound doctrine almost in a dismissive way. Oh, that's the stuff for the seminaries and the professors. That's not for regular Christians. But the primary way that Jesus has compassion for all of His people is to teach them. The reason that God has charged pastors with preaching and with oversight in the local church, and He's warned people like myself who are pastors of the stricter judgment that will await us, is that He wants all of our lives and our work and our marriages and our singing to be informed by, to be flowing from, and to be organized by the Word of God. He desires this for His people. Why? Because He loves us. It is best for us. It honors Him when we see every aspect of our lives as an act of obedience to Jesus that is grounded in God's truth as given to us in God's Word. Jesus sees us in our wandering and He has compassion for us. And He gives us His wonderful Word so that we can know our Good Shepherd and we can follow His voice. One of the greatest ways then, parents and grandparents, that you can have compassion for your children is by making sure that they consistently hear the Word of God. One of the best ways that you yourself can know the breadth and the depth of the compassion of Christ for you is to be regularly involved in hearing and reading the Word of God in community with your church. You say, I don't feel God in my life. I don't know God in my life. I need to be satisfied in my life. When's the last time you allowed yourself to be marinated in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ as given in His Word? The compassions of God for you are contained in the Word of God that He has delivered to you. And for people who still need to know our good, great chief shepherd, they too need to hear and understand God's Word. In order for them to know that they are sheep without a shepherd, somebody's got to tell them. They must know of the resurrected Christ 
their Lord, who has prepared a table for us in the presence of our enemies, who will be with us even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus teaches as His first act of compassion. But what He teaches must be internalized to truly satisfy us. It's not enough to hear It's not enough to get into your brain. It has to become the soul-nourishing bread of the heart. And he invites his disciples, his church, to have a part in sharing this supernatural provision from Christ our King with others. You see, to do this, for people to find satisfaction in the Son, the last thing we see in this text is we must overcome our excuses We must release what He has given us. And we must distribute His miraculous provision to all who will eat. It's late in the day, and Jesus is still teaching. And apparently nobody has noticed that He's gone past His 30-minute limit. But I'm not Jesus, and you are to be forgiven. But the disciples come to Jesus, and they're like, Hey, Jesus, you know, it's like, uh, it's late. Have you you seen the clock in the back of the church out there, Jesus? And what do they say to Jesus in verse 35 and 36? Here's, Here's your pastoral paraphrase. I call it the DJPV version. Jesus, there's there's nothing around here. It's late. And people are hungry. We, we don't even know, by the way, this started with the disciples having not had time to eat. They get on a boat, and unless they ate on the boat, I don't know if the disciples have any, even eaten yet. So the disciples are like, send them back to civilization and let them take care of themselves, Jesus. But as Edwards writes, the theology of Jesus and the practical instincts of the disciples come to loggerheads. They're opposed to one another. The disciples are so focused on fixing the problem that they forget about Christ's provision. As Edwards writes, the disciples are swept away by the magnitude of the problem. Do you do that with Jesus? You just get overwhelmed by the problem and you forget that you belong to Jesus? I do that all the time. But the disciples are swept away just like Moses was when he confronted the need to feed the Israelites in the wilderness back in Numbers chapter 11. But Jesus does not send the people away to buy their own meal because He's the prophet that is greater than Moses and He is Ezekiel's promised shepherd of whom it is written, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and He will feed them. Jesus has a better plan for feeding the people than the disciples do. All they can see is it's late, it's going to cost a lot of money, there's no way we can have this much bread. But Jesus uses this occasion to show us how He will use the church to deliver a better and more satisfying bread to people who are living in desolate places. When people go back to their regular lives with their regular bread, they often cover up their dissatisfaction and they miss out on the bread that Jesus gives and that Jesus is. So he says to his disciples and to us, you feed us. You feed them. Do you understand what I'm saying? They're out in desolation. They're with Jesus and the disciples say, let them go. Let them go back to their normal routine. Let them go back to providing for themselves. But Jesus keeps them in the place where only He can meet their need. And the world, we need to stop papering over 
their deep lack of satisfaction. We need to let them see their desolation and help them understand that only Christ can give them the bread that really satisfies the need of the human heart. You feed them, disciples. The disciples look at the crowd, they do some quick math, and they conclude that they will need 200 denarii worth of bread. That's a year's worth of wages to feed the crowd. And as Edwards writes, the disciples complain about what they lack, but Jesus focuses on what they possess. The problem will not be resolved by something beyond them, but something from among them. Jesus sees possibilities where the disciples see only impossibilities. Church, the bread we must distribute is the bread that He has already provided to us and which He supernaturally multiplies through obedient faith. Jesus is the bread that He has given. We have Him by faith and He calls us to take Him to those who still do not know. The same Jesus who paid the ultimate sacrifice to rescue His church is now at work through the generous sacrifices of His church to feed still thousands more with His bread. When we bring all that we have, even if it's just five loaves and two fish, a little Hebrew Happy Meal there in the middle of nowhere, Jesus multiplies it into a banquet of supernaturally satisfying provision. That's what Jesus does. And He lets us have a part in it. He didn't even need the bread that we had to do it. He made the world out of nothing. And yet He lets the church be a part of His work. They all ate, verse 42, and were satisfied. All ate. They didn't have the proper ceremonial washing that they could do before they ate out there in the middle of desolation. A lot of them were unclean. A lot of them were unconnected. A lot of them were unimportant. And Jesus gives the broken bread through His disciples to every last one of them. And I want to ask you, church, what do you have? What if Jesus said to you, go back into your houses, find what you have, and bring it to me and watch me work? Because I believe he's saying that to us, North Roanoke. We've got an opportunity to purchase Mrs. Ferguson's property. We don't know what the eventual long-term plan will be, but it's continuous property with our building. Our parking lot's right up against it. We're going to have some facilities needs in the future if God allows us to grow. And does He want us to grow? Absolutely. Does He want us to use, use us to reach a lost and dying world? Absolutely. And the question I have for you, church, is do you own something? Do you have something? What might God do if you went into your closet, if you went into your dresser drawer, if you went and found that old car in the garage. What is it? If Jesus came to us today, church, and said, I believe that we could purchase that church without a bit of financing, I have 100% certainty that we could do it if God called us to do it. I have no doubt that we could do it. We've got between now and the end of July to find the resources to purchase that home. And we will finance with the church's authority. We'll finance what we need to finance. The purchase price is $175,000. I believe with every ounce of my being that we already have that. Say, well, God's got the cattle of a thousand hills. He's got the provision. Yes, He does. But do you know what the problem is, church? Jesus has the cattle on a thousand hills, but we've got our fences around them. And until we tear down our fences and say, I love Jesus and His kingdom more than my financial security and all the stuff that I've got, and I'm not willing to sell it or give it away, we won't see God multiply His bread into a harvest among the thousands who are waiting. 
He tells the disciples, you go and you bring what you've got. And all they had was five loaves and two fish and God used it. You say, well, all I got is 50 cents to rub together. Well, put it in an envelope and say, this is for the Ferguson property and see what God might do. You say, little is much when God is in it. Yes, that's true. Little is especially much when the little that you give is a lot to you. The lesson of Scripture is not give a little and what, watch what God does with the little. The lesson is, even your little, if it's a lot to you, God will multiply. The, women, the, the woman with two mites, the lesson of that story isn't look how much God can do with two mites. The lesson of that story is she gave more than everybody. How? Because God doesn't look at the amount you put in the plate. He looks at the amount that's left over in your account after you give it. He measures in the size of the sacrifice, not in the amount that is given. And God takes great sacrifice and He multiplies it into a bountiful harvest. 15,000 people supernaturally fed. Jesus, as Edwards writes, ministers to the need through, the, through His disciples. Jesus didn't have to choose to use His church. He doesn't need our offerings. He chose to let us get in on what He's doing. It is from the disciples that He gets the offering of the bread and the fish. It is from the disciples. It's the disciples who are instructed to put the crowd into groups. It is the disciples who get to distribute the multiplied bread and the fish to the crowd. The disciples are the hands and feet of Jesus in feeding the 5,000. And we, North Roanoke Baptist Church, are His hands and feet this very day. I want to challenge you, church, as we look around at the multitudes who need Christ our shepherd, we've got to overcome the excuses. It's too late in the day. The people are too, it's too desolate out here. There's nowhere they can buy bread. We don't have enough resources. Oh, the excuses that we could mount for why we're going to put off till tomorrow what Jesus is calling to us to do today. We've got to get past the excuses. And then we must remember that Jesus is the soul-satisfying bread that we need. He has poured out His Spirit to empower us to live, trusting that as we rest in Him and we offer Him whatever we have, He will use His church to feed all kinds of lost people who are still wandering in desolate places like sheep without a shepherd, who need a warrior king shepherd to deliver them from sin and death, and that they might eat of Him, verse 42, and truly be satisfied. Church of God, may we and the nations truly be satisfied in Christ the Son.